The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yay. Don is enthusiastic as usual. Tonight, we're going to talk about the question of infantilization. Is pop culture, especially nerd culture, becoming dumbed down? And is nerd culture in general bad for people? This is a question that Simon Pegg raised recently, and an article about Simon Pegg's thoughts was brought to my attention by a fellow podcaster named Jack Ward, host of the Sonic Society, who's decided to drop by and join us today. Hey! Welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me here, and I really appreciate having the DNA badge and wallet. That really works with my Dakota Ring <laughs> theater ring, too, so appreciate being there. Exactly. You're, you're, you're well-equipped now. <laughs> I will have to wipe your mind before you leave our secret headquarters, but, you know, that's just the way it works. You can keep the ring, That's though. expected. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In any case, I thought that I'd start out by just doing a brief read, because it's not very long, of the article that uh, spawned this discussion, just so our audience can know where we're starting from and we can work from there. All right, so, Dateline, May 19th, 2015. Simon Pegg warns against infantilization of popular culture. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. Simon Pegg is taken to the internet to clarify comments made during an interview regarding whether or not nerd culture is responsible for dumbing down popular culture. But if you think that means he's backing down from his concerns about the increasing dominance of genre cinema, think again. Pegg's original comments, made to the British magazine Radio Times, saw the actor and writer decry the effect that genre entertainment has had on mainstream culture. Part of me looks at society as it is now, and just thinks we've been infantilized by our own taste, he was quoted as saying. It's kind of a dumbing down in a way, because it's taking our focus away from real-world issues. Films used to be about challenging emotional journeys or moral questions that might make you walk away and reevaluate how you felt about whatever. Now we're just walking out of the cinema, not really thinking about anything, other than the fact that the Hulk just had a fight with a robot. This was enough to provoke a response from Gawker Media's io9, which wondered whether Peg was projecting his own concerns. Not to play armchair psychologist or anything to Peg, but this does sound dangerously as though he, he didn't take anything away from the Avengers, Star Wars, or Star Trek, and now he wonders if he's thrown his whole life away on them, the piece noted, and asked, is he trolling, or has he really gotten so little out of years of science fiction? Peg offered an in-depth answer to that question on his own website. The short version? He was neither trolling, nor has he gotten little out of years of science fiction, but he's still concerned nonetheless. Recent developments in popular culture were arguably predicted by the French philosopher and cultural theorist Jean Baudrillard in his book America, in which he talks about the infantilization of society, wrote Pegg. Simply put, this is the idea that as a society, we are kept in a state of arrested development by dominant forces in order to keep us pliant. 
We are made passionate about things that occupied us as children as a means of drawing our attentions away from the things we really should be invested in. Inequality, corruption, economic injustice, etc. It makes sense that when faced with the awfulness of the world, the harsh realities around us, our instinct is to seek comfort. And where else will the majority of us find more comfort than our youth? Even the most morally complicated genre material, argued Pegg, citing both Ex Machina and Mad Max Fury Road, as evidenced against his own dumbing-down commentary, are ultimately driven by market forces, and someone somewhere wants to soften the edges so that toys and lunchboxes will be sold. Instead of rejecting the genre entertainment of his youth, wrote Pegg, he was speaking up in his defense. On one hand, it's a wonderful thing, having what used to be fringe concerns suddenly ruling the mainstream, he wrote. But at the same time, those concerns have been monetized and marketed, and the things that made them precious to us aren't always a primary concern to those controlling the properties. Pegg himself remains in partial control of at least one property. He said he's continuing to co-write the third Star Trek movie, which he named in his post as Star Trek Beyond. He'll be seen next on screen in this summer's Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, due out July 31st. Now it's funny actually, in a Facebook feed uh, comment about this, um, someone actually posted Peg's own review of the Star Trek Beyond trailer that came out recently. And you could tell that he completely hated it. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. Anyway... All right, so having uh, heard this argument, Don, what do you think? I've I've seen this come up before. Uh, There's been other commenters. And I think the first thing you really have to look at is what do they mean by infantilization? Making someone into an infant. That would be the literal definition. Yeah, but in in what terms? Because I think what ends up happening is a lot of these people get caught up in the trappings and I do have a kind of an explanation for that, but I'd like to give an example because this sort of thing isn't new. Mm -hmm. And I always cite the example of the Western. Okay. Uh, If you talk about movies, if you look at the thirties or the forties, Westerns were almost the medium. They weren't just a genre. They did comedies. They did dramas. They did action Westerns like gone with the wind is essentially a Western. Mm-hmm. And that's considered a very a classic, very mature kind of film. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the uh, go to the fifties uh, and the sixties, the image of western would be um, something to the effect of like a six year old wearing his cowboy hat with his two cap guns, shooting away. Mm-hmm. Go to like the seventies, you had an attempt to bring the western back, but to mature it up, right. Uh, it didn't go over so good. In the 90s, you had that happen yet again with, like, Young Guns and Unforgiven. And it kind of went over again. And it, it's because it gets to be cyclical. Right. And I think what ends up happening is when you see people talking about especially superheroes, and especially for superhero or science fiction movies, mm-hmm. they're caught up in that imagery, but they're not looking at how that's part of the cycle that... It, it's it's not just that a superhero or a sci-fi film is juvenile. It's mm-hmm. how do you handle that material? I see. So you're saying infantilization of media or popular culture, or at least, let's say, genres, is almost a natural part of the cycle? It is, but what I think ends up happening is a lot of critics aren't looking any deeper into it. Okay. 
All right, well, let's stop for a moment and get another perspective, before, because I know you have some theories you want to talk about, but first let's let our guests have a chance to speak. What do you think about this, Jack? I think it's interesting because there's there's a couple of things that pop by. Um, first off, mm-hmm. uh, when he talks about, you know, there were box office hits like The Godfather and Taxi Driver and Bonnie and Clyde, of course he's, he's, he's cherry-picking, right? Because mm-hmm. throughout history, there's been a ton of crap it, that's happened as well. I mean, the, the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. we had Grindhouse movies, and before that, we had the serials and the Bowery Boys and... And, uh, oh, my God, we, how many beach movies did we have and Elvis movies that were the 50s movies? <laughs> These point. are all, as far as I'm concerned, infantilized as well. But I guess his, his main argument is those shows maybe weren't for real adults. I think so, yeah. I think he's going with that idea. So then the, the question becomes, you know, what 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 makes real adult movies? And if it's infantilized when i think of infantilized i think of sort of arrested development and i'm not talking about the television show but i think about literally arrested development as as a culture so it's it's fair to say that i think like when was the last big fashion uh change i think it was like the 70s really the 70s was the time when everybody was dressed differently you had the weirdest stuff going on and ever since then you just sort of saw this constant moving towards sort of this this same look of what you know there was the odd thing you know, stirrup pants and all that kind of stuff but they weren't really as outlandish or as inventive as the 70s you were there in the 80s weren't you yes yeah. but i mean what so what you you had lycra and you had um all these really if you take a look at the 70s like go back and look at like a starsky and hutch show and you will see like everything from wingtip shoes to wide lapels to very bizarre looking shirts but there there's there's no there's more homogeneity going on as time goes by cuz it's almost like corporations because there was less and less fashion houses coming around corporations found exactly what they could sell to people as a sort of a single kind of look or a similar kind of look you're right 80s was transitional but by the time we got to the 90s can you think of like definitive uh styles that 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 took that took through everything by storm i i, I can and i doc martens well yeah really doc martens had, but... lumberjack shirts <laughs> Tukes. <laughs> They've been around for a while, though, too, right? They weren't, because I think I don't exactly agree with you, but I don't exactly disagree. You're very Canadian. Yeah, well, no, it's it's because my theory is that we really live the same 20 years again and again and again. Um, I call it the 70s and the 80s because that's when I was around. Because if you look back, like the 90s, when you talk fashion entertainment it was very 70s uh you go back to the 70s what was popular the 50s you go back to the 80s what was popular the 60s um and i i think what happened that you're you're getting at was that at the end of the 90s early 2000s somehow that formula was perfected and everything's been kind of stagnant since then 
Hmm. Well, I, I think you're right in the respect that, you, yeah, every, every 20 years people go back to what they remembered as the sunny past, right? So you got you know, Back yeah. to the Future looking back to the 50s, right? Because it was that kind mm -hmm. of, oh, yeah, we've got that sunny thing. What I'm suggesting is that because we move, we're moving further and further into a conglomerated uh, society where we didn't have – we used to have like how many different art houses and, and film companies even 30 years ago where we're down to like six entertainment organizations now, maybe four. And so when yeah. you get that kind of you know homogeneity, then of course they're going to be selling the same things over and over and over again. You're not going to get this out of like – remember Billy Jack? Billy Jack was this like small movie that became huge because out of nowhere these people did something and it started again this sort of strange kind of series of movies of Billy Jack style movies for a while but again it came out of nowhere and it came out from an entirely different small organization you're getting less and less of that as as the money for entertainment just like the money for fashion kept keeps getting put into larger and larger hands yeah but i think again what what uh that that's part of the cycle too because if you go back further to, say, the 40s, there was a lot of homogeneity then. And when you talk, say, movies, because that was like the peak of the studio system. And it was like you said, there was only a small number of companies that were controlling the output for, 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 for everybody, basically. And I like to think that eventually when you get to those bottlenecks, something happens. Like you mentioned Billy Jack, but that didn't come out of nowhere because you had like all the uh, quote-unquote outlaw films from like the 60s and the early 70s and those were kind of a derivation of the troubled teen films of the 50s it was just you were intensifying different aspects of them and tailoring them for the era um what i would say that now i think again we're in one of those bottlenecks and the example that i use for that is music who's the band that pisses off the parents now nobody mm -hmm. there isn't one and that's hmm. the parental outrage is always stupid, but it's there's always something that's just different enough that the kids are into that mom and dad are all upset about. Uh, you ask anybody now who's like the most horrifying musician out there, they all say, Oh, Marilyn Manson. And you're like, Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's terrifying from 20 years ago. Okay. Mm hmm. Like, there, there's nobody now. The closest you got was, well, Lady Gaga's weird, and that didn't last very long. Well, you, you did have maybe ICP about eight years ago, right? Oh, Insane Clown No, they were Posse. 90s Are thing. they 90s? No, I... Yeah, that's a 90s, 90s thing. Oh, no, they were still big in around 2002. They were just about to hit the big time at that point, so... 2000, it's going to be 2016. I know. That's why yeah, I, it's still like I said about 10 years. years 2002, 2004. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. Yeah, that's that's when I first heard about them was in, was in a particular really good uh, uh, PBS story called uh, The Merchants of Cool, where they actually talk about how <laughs> people go around cool hunting looking for what's going to be the greatest thing that's coming out that kids are doing mm -hmm. and then like selling it back to them. So then this echo, oh, yeah. echo chamber comes up and says, well, like where does this stuff come from then? Cause as soon as they sell it back to them, then of course it's no longer cool and they've killed it. Right. Now they have to go find something else that's cool. Right. So. Hmm. That's true. 
Actually, Don, I have a theory that goes along with your 20-year cycle, though, just to, mm-hmm. just to rewind for a second here. Because I'd say 20 years is about a generation. So that's how long it takes for the people of each generation to become in charge of the entertainment machine. Makes sense. And the, the dominant group. And, of course, what do they default back to? They default back to whatever influenced them in their, let's say, teens, childhood, that area. Hmm. And so what's really going on is people are just using the template of whatever was popular when they were a kid, whatever they thought was awesome Uh-oh. back in their day. Um, and it goes with fashion, it goes with music, it goes with everything. The superhero boom that's going on right now is a perfect example of that. Think about it. These superhero films are the ones that we, children of the 80s, absolutely dreamed of when we were reading our comic books back in the 80s. And oh, You guys, maybe. Well, okay, yes, most <laughs> of us anyway. But the key point totally. is we were... We were dreaming of like an X-Men movie and everything. Okay, we didn't quite get the one we wanted, but still, anyway, the key point is it's our generation that's in charge of Hollywood right now. Our generation are the ones putting out these superhero movies. And it's because that's the stuff that we grew up on. That was our culture of the time. And just as the 90s right. kids, when they get in charge, they're going to start stuff that's based around 90s culture, which I guess will include like lots Power of Dark Rangers or something. Actually, there is a Dark Power Rangers movie yeah. coming up. They're making one right now because the 90s kids are starting to get in charge. Remember, the 80s kids were in charge in the – what started taking over about 10 years ago or so. The 90s kids are starting to move in. The new generation is happening. Our generation is actually starting to fade a little bit, and they are starting to move in. So therefore, yeah, Power Rangers, we're going to see Darkwing Duck. We're going to see Re- – Reboot of Save <laughs> by the Bell. Reboot of Saved by the Bell, if they can get yeah. the one guy out of jail. Um, maybe that can be a plot line. Or they have to get Screech out of jail. Right. Um, we're going to see, uh, actually, and God help you, Jack, anime. Because remember, in the, especially in the mid to late oh, yeah. 90s, anime took off huge. And so we're going to start to see more and more anime adaptions in the coming years. Superheroes are going to fade and anime is going to take over, especially in mainstream yeah. cinema. You watch. Oh, Sailor Moon is going to come back with a vengeance in like five years. Oh, yeah. So we'll see a live-action Hollywood remake of Sailor Moon. It, Think about entirely that. Entirely all, uh, all, all Americans, not a single Asian person among them. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there might be there might be a token yes, half-Asian girl right. who they, like, yeah, the, yeah pretty the much. The Yellow Ranger version of, of, of Sailor Moon. <laughs> <laughs> it was yep. unfortunate, right? Because that's what happens. And again, you could we could have this argument, right? Because there's a big con- conversation going on right now about appropriation of voice, mm-hmm. right? But I think you right. and I have had this conversation where it's like, I mean, that's what every culture is. Every time we, we, we invest in, into looking at the, the interesting yeah. stories and ideas and art of another culture, of course we're going to get into it because that's cool. Right. Any rut that's not your own is new. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, that's why the Japanese love like Bugs Bunny cartoons and weird American cartoons because they're different than the Japanese style. The Japanese think that our stuff is yeah. amazing, believe it or not. Stuff that we don't even care about, like <laughs> Phineas and Ferb and that the Japanese think are awesome and SpongeBob, all that stuff. That's awesome. Because it's not their rut. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, though? Like, I'm a big fan of the whole um, – Brave New World versus 1984, where I think I think we're in Brave New World. I think that 
I think that that helps di- dictate the banality of, of the stuff that, that we end up seeing. I think that that's what Simon Pegg is looking at, though. I, I think so. Well, hold on a sec. Let me just uh, define that for our audience just in case they don't get it. Um, Brave New World and uh, 1984 were, of course, the two classic books of uh, dystopian future. And the simple version is, as I often tell my students, is that 1984 was about controlling the world through fear and or controlling through society through fear. And uh, Brave New World is about controlling society through pleasure. And so... I would agree generally that uh, yeah we're even despite the whole NSA thing I definitely think that we're uh, heading more towards Brave New World than we are 1984. Yeah, there's a great link and I, I think you should add it in the show notes of definitely uh, you've probably seen the the little comic strip where they have an example from Amusing Ourselves to Death by Stuart McMillan and he talks about the fact that while Huxley feared there would be no reason to ban a book. He feared that because no one would want to read anymore because all you're going to do is Mm -hmm. watch, like he says, the, you know, like it says in the comic, the the biggest loser, you know, or or some other, (laughs) some other, you know, reality television show that is that that doesn't have to threaten our ideas of who we are that we can root for in the end. uh, That's really easy for people to digest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I Same thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. Go, Don. Oh. oh, see, I think they're both totally wrong. Okay. Because well, you I suck. Think, uh, you wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you win. Go <laughs> on. Because no, everybody does this. And this is one of the things that drives me nuts when you see entertainment critics. Because they're always like going top down. And it's really bottom up. Mm-hmm. Like, why do movies suck? It's because that's what people want to see. Like, Hollywood, quote unquote, doesn't dictate a damn thing. They respond. They react. They don't create. They don't mm-hmm. give you new. That's what the independent guys used to be for. Right. And then everybody goes and gravitates to it. Um, my favorite examples, I can't think of how many conversations I've had that were something to the effect of, Hollywood's out of ideas. Followed immediately by a new Batman. Awesome. Who's in it? No, it, it's the audience. It all comes from the audience. Right. But it's very difficult to blame the audience. And it, oh, no, I just did. It's it, really Isn't easy. that what Aldous, uh, Aldous, Aldous Huxley says in Brave New World? Isn't he saying that it's us? It's the audience that is deciding to fill ourselves with banal things to to constantly check mm-hmm. our twitter feeds to constantly do all this kind of stuff of course we can't spend any time looking at gritty movies we're too busy getting distracted because we got this post to do on instagram we don't have time to watch an entire two-hour movie that takes too much effort hmm okay see but it's but it's not an evil overlord that facilitates it that's where i think the the notion kind of goes off the rails it's 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 entirely us like if people wanted to see smart deep movies guess what they'd make but people don't and they make the big special effects slam bang fest that makes all the money well guess where the producers are gonna go oh i I, right i agree and and sorry to interrupt go ahead rob no it's go ahead 
I so I say I agree, but it's one of those it's one of those things. Just because there's not an identifiable conspiracy doesn't mean there's not a confluence of of impulses and uh, uh, investments and power that that moves people towards a certain direction. Because we know that human beings have this ability to be easily distracted because that's the way our brains work. Well, we're just going to keep feeding that kind of distraction because we can sell more stuff to them so we can make them even more distracted so that they can do all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. If they didn't have those in the first place, uh, if if there was no Twitter and you, you Twitter was requirement that you had to have um, 5,000 words to post, how different would society be, right? <laughs> No one would read it. They don't have time. Well, maybe they. Oh, no, I... Maybe they would make the time if that was if that was the kind of society that came up with that in the first place. Yeah, they 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 would. And the, a lot of the posts would be, and I was very 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 <laughs> very excited to, um, because it it kind of goes with the idea. A uh, friend of ours by the name of Tim used to say that people follow the path of least existence. <laughs> Hmm. And, and I and I think that's true. And I think when it comes to entertainment, um, we don't get enough blame as the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the critical thing is, because because like I say, if everybody wanted Hollywood to, th- th- there's plenty of new ideas out there. Nobody cares. That's why you don't see them. And everybody likes to blame Hollywood because then we can still feel smart. Right. Um. Okay, can I interrupt for a sec? So I'm reading a book right now by... Oh my god! Ah! I know, I know. It's, <laughs> don't worry, it's only 5,000 words long. Um, <laughs> it's called The Odessa Files by uh, Simon Forsyth. Right. I think it's Simon Forsyth. Anyway, um, the Frederick. short version of the book... Hmm? Have you read it, Jack? Frederick. It's, it's Frederick Forsyth, right? Frederick Forsyth, yeah. yes. Frederick Forsyth. Thank you. Thanks for the correction. Hmm. Um, by Frederick Forsyth, right. Okay, and one of the, the basic book is about a reporter looking for a Nazi uh, in like 1963 Germany, so post World War II Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, this actually, oddly enough, it ties in in a weird way because one of the things that happens is he discovers as he's looking for this Nazi that is a former SS uh, captain. Uh, yeah, former SS captain. And he discovers that the German people don't aren't really that interested in actually finding the Nazis within their midst. And one of the things that one of the other characters eventually tells him is that, look, they have this idea of collective guilt, all right? That everyone is in, that every German was guilty of what happened in World War II. It didn't, didn't matter who you were, you were all guilty of what happened in World War II just by dint of being German. And then they go on to talk about how, actually, for the SS, who basically reintegrated themselves into society, that was the best thing ever. Because if every German was responsible for what happened in World War II, then no German was responsible for what happened in World War II. By not blaming the SS and not blaming the people in charge, it let them off the hook. The SS thought this was wonderful because suddenly, yeah, you're just as responsible as I am. So how can you charge me with anything? 
And so this actually retarded the German people from actually really looking at themselves and finding true solutions. Instead, they just said, yeah, we're all responsible, so nobody's responsible. And they just went on with their lives. It's a really fascinating book, actually, and uh, that's one of the more fascinating aspects of it. But I think that ties back into a little bit of, like, Don, as a regular thing, says, okay, the audience is responsible. But the thing is, that's almost like saying nobody's responsible in the end, because the audience is a giant amorphous mass that is uncontrollable, and you really can't do anything about. There are gatekeepers, we call them the people who run Hollywood, they truly are influencing things, sometimes on purpose, often not, and I'd say that they actually do have a responsibility that they're not living up to. At least that's my rant anyway. What do you think? I think that, well, your analogy is good, but I think you take it the wrong way, because to go back to to the book, Mm -hmm. the idea is if all Germans were responsible for it, then none of them mm-hmm. are. Well, then you can't punish any. No, they were all punished. It was called World War Two, and this is why when you look at like, uh, like say crappy movies, and I'm saying it's all of our faults. No, we all get punished. It's called the Transformers movies won't stop. Holy crap! Well, there is that. Um, Transformers Four was a yeah was a definitely punishment. There's no question on that. <laughs> So for the other three. Hell, so is the original movie from the 80s. Hey, don't diss the original Transformers animated movie, man. That's as far as I go. <laughs> it had Orson Welles in it. That's all that mattered. Yeah, ironically playing a planet. Yeah. Hold on, just one sec. My dog's about to start barking. Okay. Hold on one sec. Penny, quiet. No, anyone who's out there is half dead from the cold. You don't need to bark <laughs> Fate will have them soon enough. That's why she's barking. She wants food. <laughs> Somebody's going to drop dead on your street, and she's going to come in with a thigh bone, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if she comes in with a piece of an ice zombie, that's actually a bad thing. That's great. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, are you going to bark, Penny? Are you going to bark? Okay. All right. I might even leave this part in. All right, so... <laughs> That was actually pretty good. Anyway, so, yes. All right. I admit that the Transformers and such are punishing us. I mean, there is definitely a mirror factor. The audience gets the entertainment they deserve. But at the Mm. same time, I don't think we should completely let Hollywood off the hook. I mean, it sounds from your perspective like you are letting them off the hook by just saying, well, they're just responding to the audience. Okay, Jack first, then Don. (laughs) I'm always interested in what Don says, so I always want to. But I'll, I'll say, I think one of the things you're talking about is more relativism, right? And and it's it's just as bad today as it is everywhere else. Nobody wants to say, well, it's like you know, well, I you know, I can't say that you know you shouldn't wear pajamas on the airplane because. Who am I to say what you should wear? Whereas back in the day, people wouldn't be you know, caught dead without a three-piece suit or a tie if they were sitting on the airplane. Don't, don't even get mm-hmm. started with how to take care of your kids, right? Because <laughs> the last thing anybody wants to do is to say anything that could in any way, in any shape or form, suggest that they had some kind of moral idea of how people <laughs> should do things, right? So we live in this moral mm. relativism, unless you get into the outrage factor, right? And then, of course, everybody's outraged about things, too. So it's, it's funny. It's a really weird mm. time. <laughs> well, and the fact that everyone has an equal 
voice, thanks to the internet, also makes it a weird time. Yeah, but that's cyclical, because remember, political correctness originally was a 90s thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think back to the 70s having to sit through that free-to-be-you-and-me bullshit. I was traumatized for life. And that was the same idea. <laughs> so even do you remember, that, even do you remember cold cyclical. pricklies and warm fuzzies in school? Good oh, lord, yes. yes. <laughs> oh. Remember oh. that whole, oh, don't, don't do that. You just gave him a cold prickly, right? And like, what are you, <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Sorry, man. Sorry, I didn't mean to give you a cold That's prickly. Right. Can we think of some warm fuzzies to share around the class? Yeah, I remember all that. Yeah. Warm fuzzies are my trigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any Quick, rush him to a safe space. Rush him to a safe space. <laughs> Emergency. Evac. Evac. See, but I mean, is there is do we have a do we have a problem with moral relativism? Is there is there an issue? Do you think that that we have? Because now I could tell you because I'm a teacher. I, I apologize, but it's funny. Uh, it, no, it's funny. In a, <laughs> Never apologize for being a teacher, Jack. Never apologize. Well, well, it means it means I come from a very specific perspective. But I'll tell you something that really mm -hmm. shocked me. I have my three or four years in a row now. My uh, sixteen-year-old students. These are sixteen people who can drive cars. Do not have never heard the word mm -hmm. ethics, morals, morality, beliefs. They did not know what those words mean. And I, it's not just like one classroom. It was multiple classrooms through about three years. I kept asking these questions and, and they never heard of things like Emily Post or, you know, or any of that kind of Not that I'm suggesting that we should go back to that situation, but just <laughs> the basic ideas of, you know, um, you should probably use cutlery when you're when you're eating or Hawking a loogie while I'm trying to speak is generally something that people frown upon, right? <laughs> Usually. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd say, yeah, that's part of, as you say, moral relativism. It's bad to teach kids manners because then you're imposing your ideas on them. Yeah. Yeah, but see, you're, you're making a – again, I, I say it's cyclical because – Mm -hmm. That idea of don't impose your values on other people is the same kind of thing that you're talking about has gone away. Now, somebody's always trying to tell you how to live your life. It's just the format and the styling of it changes every so often. And and I think the magnitude, because uh, we mentioned uh, like a, a show or two back, the idea that um, when you had the, the uh, religious right ascendant in North America... In mm -hmm. a lot of ways, it's it's similar to the uh, social justice warrior thing that goes on nowadays. It's just the magnitude's a little different, and the religious right was more of like a conservative thing, whereas the social justice crusader is more a liberal thing, but it still basically amounts to the same thing where somebody's telling you mm -hmm. what you should think and how you should feel and how you should live. Yes, definitely. I mean... Liberals, conservatives, there are often two sides of the same coin, especially when it comes to that kind of thing. Oh, an asshole's an asshole. That's pretty much what it comes down to. <laughs> Everybody likes to think that they're more open-minded than the other person, right, than the other side. The other side's the one that's being irresponsible. The other one's the one that's trying to, like, control your life. By the way, I happen to have a copy of uh, Ideas, CBC episode Ideas of Dungeons and Dragons. And, you do. and and I have it digitized if you guys ever want to hear it. 
And uh, it's great because they have the people, they have bad, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons on there talking about Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. And so when you guys brought it up on the show, it reminded me here, you know, here we are, right? Nope, nobody mm-hmm. is saying anymore, nobody at least credible is saying anymore that Dungeons and Dragons is, is, <laughs> is you know, the, the fault of the devil and, and, and Satanism and kids shouldn't be involved you're not unless you're on you're in the bible belt maybe but at most people around mm-hmm. the world you're not hearing that just like you're not hearing the same thing about comics anymore um mm-hmm. but True. then those were the last few places that had these ideas that you know simon Pegg was saying we don't have anything that really breaks the mold anymore that that makes people shocked that makes people think in that way an interesting point it goes back to what don just said earlier about there being no bad music for kids anymore i mean i'm sure there if you're middle america there probably are some things you're not happy your kids are listening to like gangsta rap or whatever version it is now but ultimately that's true there is very little media that parents are unhappy about their kids consuming anymore short of actual porn yeah Mm. and that's become and even porn semi-mainstream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and you hear people arguing all the time that, you know, that, you know, what's so wrong about that? What's so what's so wrong? We have to stop we have to stop bad-mouthing porn. Right? That was <laughs> So you're hearing that but, kind of push as well. So Well, definitely. A whole that, generation has grown up on it thanks to the internet. You think that they're going to think porn is a bad thing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but again, too, it's the 70s again, and if you remember at the beginning of the 70s, porn didn't get respectability. Again, the magnitude of the events changed. But, like, Deep Throat was reviewed in variety. It was it was something that was, was more general public. We can get geekier mm-hmm. than that, Don. Flesh Gordon. Uh-huh. Oh, yikes. Remember Flesh Gordon? Uh-huh. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. I mean, Alice in Wonderland yeah. was a big thing, too, so... Wait, there was an Alice in Wonderland mainstream like porno version. Well, yeah. mainstream-ish. I mean, it starred uh, was it Christina Bell or something Bell, and she became a soap opera actress. She was one of the first crossover people who came into mainstream. Huh. Hmm. I actually never heard of that one. Yep. I knew about Caligula. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of but that was that was sort of snuck in though, wasn't it? It was it was sort of one of those movies that you, that wasn't what it was supposed to be, but it ended up being so. <laughs> oh, it it it's one of the ones because they had a lot of really like like explicit, brutal movies in the sixties, like the late sixties, and it was kind of one of those. Like, it's not generally considered porn because porn is usually associated with uh, low production values and a wah-wah pedal, especially in the 70s. But it does kind of bridge that yeah. gap, because it was a lot more explicit than stuff that you'd see nowadays kind of thing. I don't it's know. Clean... It's like Spartacus now. Mm-hmm. Think about the television show Spartacus. It was pretty close. Yeah. Um, is Spartacus the new Caligula? <laughs> Kind, you kind of, but it, even then, it didn't. It didn't quite. Like I wouldn't say it quite went to the same degree, but it was getting closer. And I think again, it's because even that idea comes and goes. The idea mm-hmm. of, of of um, what ratings are acceptable for for making a movie from a production point of view. 
we're hmm. getting pushback from even the the sex scenes in Game of Thrones now that I never thought we would get. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the Queen of the the Queen of Dragons she she's signed. Well, she doesn't want to be nude anymore and have these kinds of scenes specifically, right? Well, but yeah. part of that's because she's becoming a legit actress who's appearing in standard Hollywood films now. She doesn't want to have to do that anymore. You know, she's yeah. earned her stripes by taking off her top, so to speak, and now she feels she's above that kind of thing. Or yeah, above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny because in the in the old days, I mean, if she had done it, that was the end, right? Now it's sort of like this is what you need to do. This is your bar to get that kind of ratings, and then you never have to do it again. Well, remember Sharon Stone? Yeah. Well, that happened. No a one lot. cared about Sharon Stone until she crossed her legs in front of the screen. Yeah. I don't. Didn't she, was Total Recall before that though? It was, uh, but nobody cared. Hmm. She was in it for you know, like I think five minutes at the beginning, ten minutes at the end, and it, everybody That's in Total cool. Recall. It was it was the chick with the three tits, man. That's what everybody remembered from it. <laughs> That's true. It's hard to look at Sharon Stone after you've seen the chick with the three tits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe it was just me. I was in love with Sharon Stone because of that movie. I wanted it to be a dream mm. just because of <laughs> Sharon Stone. <laughs> and it was. It was. Spoilers. It was. Okay. 25-year-old spoilers. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That, that's okay. A couple shows ago, Chad ruined the ending of Disney Snow White for everybody. I know that. I can't believe he did that on our oh, show. <laughs> oh, the letters. <laughs> letters? <laughs> Told you I'm a Luddite. Yes, no, I, I appreciate a good Luddite. We need a couple more of you around. So, <laughs> Okay, let's shift things a tiny bit then. It's going back to part of my earlier thesis in a way, though. Um, how much... like? Do you think, let's be conspiratorial for a second here, how much of Peg's analysis, the idea that those in power are actually using the infantilization of media as a way to control people, is there any credence to that? I mean, are the powers that be actually infantilizing people on purpose just to make them easier and more pliant? You know, the old bread and circuses theory, not just entertaining them, but actually kind of keeping them dumb and passive. Again, again, I guess that goes back to Brave New World. (laughs) Eh, I don't know, I'd probably say 10%. Like, for the most part, it's we do it to ourselves. The people in authority usually come from an echelon far removed from the minions like us, and they don't understand why. Well, they seem to like this stuff, uh, do more of that! And that's why they tend to seem so out of touch. They're trying, they're just not that good at it. I, I, I think they're more... Sorry, go I was going to say, I think it's more like 70% after watching the show episodes, the Matt LeBlanc show, because from mm-hmm. from what I hear from Hollywood insiders, it's just like that, and that terrifies me. Um, I'm afraid you're going to have to <laughs> explain that to us, because I've never seen it, and I don't think Dawn has either. Oh, oh no, the show episodes, they do have it on Netflix if you get a chance to watch it. It is, it is painfully funny at times. Matt LeBlanc plays Matt LeBlanc, and uh, it's about two British <laughs> actors – who are married uh, and did this British show, very very well-received show, won lots of awards. And, of course, they want to redo it in Hollywood, and they're given, like, potloads of money to come down and do it. But when they get there, it becomes exactly nothing like what it used to be. 
And because mm-hmm. they have all these people coming out with notes and suddenly it's not about this person, it's about this minor person. And it's about not about his relationship with the boys in this boys' school and them growing older, but actually his relationship with the librarian, the girl in this boys' school kind of thing. And they're no longer this. Now they're not you know, they're not playing rugby football or whatever. Now they're playing hockey. And now they're doing so there all these things come to a point that they and they just pull their hair out and they go, I just want to go home i can't stand what i am anymore and matt leblanc is is the guy that they hire to be like the main character and he half the time tries to get out of the show because he doesn't like it anymore himself and he's the one who put it that way so it's actually pretty funny and like i said it's it's pretty devastating when you think about it. i think it's i think it's the mediocrity of of people if they can get away with selling crap Without having mm-hmm. to do any work, they're going to do that because they go, oh, well, you know what? We can just give them another sitcom with Tim Allen and uh, have them go, oh, 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 oh. I'm, wa- I'm sorry, I'm watching Last Man Standing lately. And it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's just reminding me of, of uh, Home Improvement like 20 years ago. There you go. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little more right wing. That's about it. Uh, so I, I think that's what happens is they think that they, if they can film it without getting any decent writing in or any actual performances from actors, if everybody can phone it in, everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. Actually, that leads into an interesting point. Something that I've observed now, again, this is my own relative, you know, perspective, but I noticed over time sitcoms have gotten dumber oh big time like i mean yeah yeah okay don let me finish yes uh once upon a time in the 50s leave it to beaver was not the most intelligent thing ever (laughs) okay but Mm -hmm. when you got into like the 60s and especially the 70s i mean you had things like all in the family you had good times i mean good times yeah barney miller barney miller mash Mash. i mean if you want to count that as a sitcom, well, pretty much was. Um, mm. The key point is they dealt with issues and they were had much more serious writing and they were almost somewhere between comedy and drama. Yep. And then we got a half-assed version of that in the 80s. And then by the 90s, we got like Urkel. Yeah. Like it, things literally descended into this like madness of one-liners and such. Yeah, fast-paced comedy as opposed to actual character development. I, I always say this all the time. Yeah. I watched Frasier, and Frasier I used to like, but as the show went on, he just de-evolved as a character. He mm-hmm. became less interesting and more a caricature of himself. Whereas you take a look at something like Taxi. Danny DeVito, yeah. who was the bad guy in the exactly. show, I think ended up becoming some like a regular human being. Same with Archie Bunker, right? You always had that yeah. those struggles, but you saw mm-hmm. him evolve, right? Absolutely, I I couldn't agree yep. more. Okay, but obviously See, Don does not. Okay, go. Well, I don't disagree, but I think again, what what happens is. When they produce stuff like this, uh, Jack was talking about how they, they're as lazy as they can be. And on a personal level, for people involved, for what I've heard, yeah, you're basically right, because it's just a job. Mm-hmm. But for the organizations as a whole, like the movie companies, the TV companies, they put a lot of work and research into the audience. Like, that's what typically kills movies is when it gets focus grouped to death. Mm. 
and that shit takes effort. And this is where I say, this is where that back and forth becomes important because this is the audience telling them what to do. And they just follow along like dumbasses because number one, it's, it's, it's easier. Number two, it's safer because then if the show tanks, you get, no, I focus grouped it and it all came out in the blah, blah, blah. Um, mm-hmm. my, my favorite example of that was um, the 2003 Astro Boy cartoon. That okay. was a uh, Japanese co- produ- co-production with, with an American company. On the DVDs, one of the bonus features is you see an interview between like the, the, the heads of production for, for both, from American and Japan. And it's hilarious because the American guys are like, does he have to be a robot? And you can tell the Japanese people just Number one, they're confused. Number two, want to just throttle the shit out of these people. But again, it's 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 that safe, lazy thing, and that safe, lazy thing comes from what they think will work. Um, when you look at sitcoms, I'm going to give you three examples. Okay. I was going to say I'm going to give you three examples that say that 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 maybe maybe they're the the the, the examples that prove your rule, or they, maybe they break that whole idea. Uh, Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Simpsons yeah. and X Files. Yeah, all of those okay. were not liked for the first couple of seasons. They had no, they right. had no audience. They had nobody. All they had was somebody network going, "Look, these are going to be a hit. Trust me. We have to keep these going." And they all became monster mm-hmm. hits. But it took a while for them to do it. That's where you actually get people leading and saying, "Hey, this is great." You have to, you know, you if you really want to create interesting television or interesting movies you have to have those people who believe in a product to make it really last or else you're going to have like like rob says you know 20 years of urkel shows that nobody remember mm-hmm. yeah but you you kind of get that like um when you get shows like like the ones you mentioned what ends up happening a lot of times is they become filler. Like Seinfeld was originally filler. They they got six episodes to begin with, which is totally unheard of. It was of a summer replacement for, show, yeah. Yeah. And then it just happened that there was enough ratings and there wasn't anything else in the pipe that they said, eh, just let it run for a bit. Because you do get shows where somebody actually gives a damn. And um, I'd go back to, say, the 70s. You look at uh, All in the Family... All in the Family is the show that started the quote-unquote smart sitcoms of the 70s because mm-hmm. it it became super popular. So everybody wanted to do that. And they said, well, it tackles like current issues and stuff. And that lasted in the 80s until you got the Cosby show, which was the original show about nothing. And then that was a hit. So all of a sudden we had all these dumbass family shows where the worst thing that ever happened was, uh-oh, Billy didn't do his homework. Oh. And then that led through the the 80s most of the 80s it was really crappy until you got to say um married with children where somebody said why don't we do that but make it angry <laughs> so so married with children was the dark gritty uh <laughs> cosby show and that was the thing to do was dark gritty things up so it's it's part of this natural progression and sometimes everything comes together that you do get something new out of it but a lot of times that's just out of desperation. Yeah, you had the whole 90s of uh, fat, stupid husband with hot wife. Yeah. You know? 
90s. Yeah. That's pretty much running up until today. Yeah, well, I've stopped watching yeah. those, so I won't know. But, I mean, King of Queens <laughs> and Everybody Loves Raymond, and you could go on with about 15 different shows, right? <laughs> Probably ones uh, that we don't Life with Jim, yeah. right? Yeah, there's a ton of those where the same kind of thing. And you're like, wow, can we find any other guy who is supposedly this loser? I mean, that's what The Simpsons is based on, too, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's possibly where that came from. If you think Marge is hot. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in the show does. Well, as soon that's as true. soon as her hair goes down, right? She's always hot with the, <laughs> her hair going down as opposed to going straight up kind of thing. She's always portrayed okay. as, as attractive. How do we go into this dark place of of talking about how attractive? <laughs> Next thing we're going to be talking comparing her to Betty Rubble. Who's hottest, right? <laughs> I'm totally a Betty you're, man. Sorry, you're, you're Betty, Betty Rubble, I'm going right? Stone Age. Yeah. Well, Simpsons, you know, Simpsons owe a whole lot to Flintstones. That's for sure, right? The Flintstones <laughs> went a long, yeah. long, long time, and they were the first cartoon show that was, you know, at at prime time, right? Oh no, that was that was essentially the Flintstones. Yeah, that's what I said. The Flintstones were the first. Yeah, that's what he said. Prime yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant the Simpsons. No, no. The Flintstones were the first primetime show, that uh, cartoon show that they did, which is incredible when you think it was like only partial animation, right? Well, yeah, yeah, but remember that the Flintstones was basically just the Honeymooners. Yep. And the Honeymooners was literally the most popular thing on the air ever at that time. Oh, I know. For the longest time, Barney Rubble was really, uh, you know, Ed Norton's voice. Hey, Fred. Yeah. Fred. Fred. Yeah. Hey, Ralph! Ralphie, exactly. baby! Yeah. It's the whole thing. That's well, true. Exactly, yeah. As I, well, as I understand it, too, I mean, I thought the, the Flintstones was, the original intent was, it was going to be an animated Honeymooners, and they lost the rights. So they said, yeah, cavemen. Yeah. Really? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the big advancements that happen in entertainment are just accidents. And Jackie Gleason believed in UFOs. There, they just throw that out. <laughs> All the way to the FBI. I think he went. I think he went like straight into the military specifically because he really believed in the, in the in in UFOs. Okay, how's that for geeky? And he wanted to help us make contact with you know aliens. I, apparently, <laughs> he was going to fly them to the moon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talk about degenerating. I think this show is definitely degenerated at this point. All right, yeah, so no, maybe I guess, any... this conspiracy theory that came into my head, maybe yes. Simon Pegg has done this entire article, this entire interview for one reason and one reason alone, to cover his tracks because his script for Star Trek Three is so crappy that he just wants to sort of already divorce himself from it and back away. He could be... The, the great James Bond villain in Hollywood, and none of us know this because he comes across as this night. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's true. All British people are bad <laughs> in movies. Oh, my God. Think about it. Oh, my God. You're right. The Empire in Star Wars, they all have British accents. Holy crap. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, but, Jack, what about James Bond? <laughs> Well, well, he's not exactly oh, great. Ooh. <laughs> he do, he does have a dark he, okay, side, right? Joke. So think about it. The most popular James Bond was played by Sean Connery, a Scotsman. Dun dun dun. <gasps> dun dun dun. Oh my god! How did how did Sean Connery know thirty forty okay. years ago that Simon Pegg would be doing this now? 
<laughs> well, it's the British conspiracy. You've heard of the Canadian conspiracy. This is the British conspiracy. <laughs> that was a fun movie. They should do that again. They should do a, a, a Canadian conspiracy. Yeah, they should party up party totally. <laughs> they could totally do that. Do you remember that at all, yeah, Don? Definitely. Lauren Green as uh, Lauren Green is the Godfather. Yeah, kinda. Who would be the Godfather now? Who's, uh, obviously Shatner. <laughs> I was gonna, well, he was he was there in the in the first one, so yeah, it would have to be Shatner. Green passed it? away, and he passed his baton, so to speak, to Shatner. Shatner's the new Godfather of Canadian Unlo- actors. Un- well, to be fair, you know, Shatner's still too much in the limelight. It has to be somebody who hasn't been popular for a while. Somebody like Wayne Gretzky. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> they do call him the Great One. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all coming together. Oh, my God. Gretzky's a Sith Lord. <laughs> all right. Good night, folks. <laughs> At this, I, okay, so I think we've pretty much exhausted our topic. I guess the answer is that the um, the media, despite what Simon Pegg may think, is not purposely infantilizing us all to turn us into little zombies. Not entirely purposely, anyway. It's mostly our own tastes that are actually doing it. And I guess, yeah, that makes sense. I, can, I think I can work with that. Yeah. Um, I guess it comes Fair back enough. to uh, what one of my... Well, what a friend of ours named Chad often mentions, his, he calls it the chocolate cake paradox, which runs something like this. People love chocolate cake. They love chocolate cake so much they will eat it constantly. They would have chocolate cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The problem, however, is chocolate cake will very quickly make them sick. So the thing is, we lo- things we love, if we get too much of them, will actually are bad for us. They will make us sick. But we still want them anyway. And I think that some of that is actually what's happening with the, um, the, me- the media and the entertainment industry. Is we're accidentally poisoning our own well. At least that's my theory anyway. Mm. On that note, Don, I'm going to uh, bring the show to a close. Um, thanks for another interesting episode of the Department of Nerdly Affairs. And um, audience, please tune in next week when we'll discuss something incredible, amazing, and fantastic. And you'll just have to tune in to find out. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Don. See you in the Sonic Society. Good night. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!